Somebody asked me, which rendition is it going to be this week? And I said, I don't know, but it's going to be good. And uh, man, I love that line, grace will lead me home. And uh, that's what we're focusing on uh, from the Old Testament book of Hosea. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to have you be a part of us. It's wonderful to have you who are online as well. It seems like every week I hear about people who faithfully worship with us online, many who are far from the 75019 zip code. And it's great to have you joining us. And uh, if this is your first time with us, we have been, we're in week three of a, a four-week series on the Old Testament book of Hosea. And uh, Hosea, his story is, is quite an unusual one. His first official act as, as God's prophet is not to preach a sermon like so many Old Testament prophets, but actually to get married, to get married to a woman named Gomer, a woman uh, who would not hold true to her marriage vows. Now, why in the world would God ask that of Hosea? Well, believe it or not, it was so that Hosea would be able to preach personally, to speak personally about the pain of betrayal, as God often feels from us, and also the power and gift of grace, of, of forgiveness. Uh, and so that's what this book is about. And today I want us to see that if we want to understand grace, we have to understand the giver of grace. You know, uh, if we don't understand uh, God, we won't have a, an honest and good relationship with God, just like in any relationship. And, and we won't understand the, the power of his grace uh, because we're made in God's image. Uh, if we don't understand God, we won't understand how our sin betrays him, uh, how it, it uh, violates his, his covenant and his holiness. If we don't understand God, uh, we'll have a cheapened view of grace. Grace will be something insubstantial. It'll be like free parking. Oh, that's nice. Uh, grace, yeah. Uh, an underappreciated uh, benefit and not a costly, personal, valuable gift, the most valuable thing that we have. If we don't understand God, we will put our souls in grave danger. And so uh, the purpose, in, in a sense, of this message is to deal with our sometimes distorted theology, our distorted understanding of who God is. It's to have a truer understanding of God's character. And so I want to read to you uh, a passage. We'll begin at the end, near the end of Hosea chapter 5, Hosea 5.13. We'll read through chapter 6, verse 6. And uh, this passage will, will, will test us. Uh, it will challenge us uh, to understand uh, God's holiness and God's love. And so listen as I read, beginning in Hosea 5, verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you not able to heal your sores, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. So into chapter six. So come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains 
that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. May God bless the reading of his word. If we don't understand God, we won't understand his grace that leads us home. And so this morning, for the bulk of this sermon, I want to talk about two vital things we need to know about our God. And by the way, I expect both things to make you a bit uncomfortable, uh, but I care more about your soul than your comfort. Uh, and, and after we've talked about a true understanding of God, we'll, we'll conclude by saying, well, what do we do now? How do we respond to this vision? So as you already guessed by the reading of scripture, our passage falls in in the middle of the book in a a pretty challenging section of Hosea. In the same way that Hosea, the husband, uh, is brokenhearted over the infidelity of his wife, God is brokenhearted over the spiritual adultery that is rampant in Israel at that time. In fact, if you just kinda uh, skim through chapter five, words will stand out that display God's displeasure. Words like rebellion and corrupt. Uh, In verse four of chapter five, a a brutal phrase, the spirit of of prostitution that is is taking place in the heart of Israel. In verse five of chapter five, Hosea speaks of Israel's arrogance. In verse 10 of their injustice, one commentator, uh, Derek Kidner, says that in, in many ways, the book of Hosea is a study of what it means to turn your back to God. And so I believe what what this section of Hosea can do for us today is it can give us a clearer view of God. It can help us try to more adequately answer the question, who is God really? Who is God really? And how does God feel about spiritual adultery? How does God feel about our betrayal? Let me ask you something. Would you want a God who says in the face of massive injustice and, and spiritual corruption. Would you want a God who says, oh, no big deal. I, oh, I don't care about that kind of thing. I, I, I couldn't care less. All that stuff doesn't matter to me. Would you want a God like that? It doesn't really matter because that's not the God you have. But, but would you want a God like that? I, I wouldn't. So who is our God? Well, Hosea tells us that, that first of all, our God is a lion. Our God is a lion. Does that language surprise you? Is that the way you picture God? The image of a lion is used often in the Bible, uh, and it, it is used to symbolize ferocious strength, supreme strength. And it's one of those metaphors that could be used for good or it could be used for evil. It could be used for, for holy strength or it could be used to symbolize evil strength, like for example, on the evil side of the ledger, 1 Peter 5.8 says that your, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That is evil strength. We're told that in Revelation 13, the beast has a mouth like that of a lion. But at the same time, the image of the lion is often pictured in the Bible as a figure of righteous 
strength. And that's definitely true in the passage that we just read. Verse 14 says, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is, is, is a, it's the name of one of a tribe, and it's, it's a nickname for the northern kingdom of Israel. I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. That's the southern kingdom of Israel. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Wow. This is not the only time in this book that God is pictured as a lion. In chapter 11, verse 10, it says, They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling. How does that image strike you? God as a lion. Does it surprise you? This picture of God as the, the roaring king of the beasts, right? the king of the forest. I find it fascinating that when C.S. Lewis wrote his series for children of, of all ages, the Chronicles of Narnia, he pictured the, the Christ figure not as a, a horse or a teddy bear or a, a bunny rabbit or, or, or a hamster. No, he pictured the Christ figure, Aslan, as this powerful lion. Maybe some of you have heard this little excerpt before in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the children who've entered uh, this wardrobe, this uh, closet into this strange new world of Narnia, uh, Peter and Susan and Lucy, they're, they're talking to a group of beavers about Aslan. And uh, Susan says, well, who is Aslan? And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Susan then says, as we probably would too, is he quite safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. Why is this so important? Why is it so important in the context of, of Hosea 5 and Hosea 6? I think it is because the people of Israel had lost a sense of awe. They'd lost a sense of trembling. They'd lost a sense of reverential trust and obedience for our great lion God. Here's the tragic thing. Israel knew that she was sick. Israel knew that she was in a weakened position geopolitically. Israel knew that something was wrong with her. Israel knew that something was threatening to, her, to destroy her. But in her sickness, where did Israel run for urgent care, so to speak? Did she run back to God, the Lion of Judah, the all-powerful one? No. Let's look again at verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness in Judah, his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king of Assyria for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. When the people were sick, the north and the south did not run to God. Instead, she turned to politics. She turned to the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser III. She put her hope in earthly solutions. She paid a, a heavy tribute to this pagan country of Assyria. She, she tried to win the favor of that great human king instead of turning back to the Lion of Judah. And God allowed Israel to suffer 
greatly. God withdrew like a lion to his den. God waited for Israel to come to her senses and come back to God and seek the lion's face. Our God is a lion. Our God is powerful. Chapter six, verse five says, God's words and God's truth and God's prophets, those words will cut us. They'll cut us to the quick. Our God's word is a sword. Don't mistake God's kindness for weakness. I told you a few weeks ago that uh, we got to take our, our granddaughter to the San Antonio Zoo, and I hadn't been to a zoo in a while, and, and I was wondering, you know, what are we going to get to see? And we, you know, we saw great things. Uh, but, but I was wondering specifically about you know, lions and, and tigers, and we did get to see them. Uh, but fortunately for us, they were like in this little cave area, dozens of feet below us, and there were high walls and high fences to protect us. And, and, and I'm telling you, those lions, even though they were snoozing, uh, they, they had my healthy respect. I would not want to meet them if there were no cages. I would not want to meet them on level ground. Uh, and, and, and I don't think similarly that I could trust any version of Christianity where there was no room for God's majesty, for God's lion-like power, for God's fierce commitment to holiness. Now, if you were to ask me, is it a wonderful thing or a scary thing that our God is a lion, I would say yes. It is wonderful and it is scary. Or maybe I would say it depends. It depends on whether the lion is fighting against me or fighting for me. Whether Israel realized it or not, she was fighting against God, and God is a lion. Israel made a human entity, a foreign king, her savior. And in so doing, she made God her enemy. And the question is, what will she do now? Will she repent? Will she return to the lion's den? Will she earnestly seek his face. But of course, as we read this passage, we, we realize there's so much more to the story, isn't it? God is not only a lion, God is also, secondly, a lover. Does that make you uncomfortable? Maybe not as uncomfortable as the lion part, but, but that's not the language that we usually use in, in church, right? We, we have a church channel, and then there's that lifetime channel, but we don't mix the channels up, right? We don't, we don't mix up that kind of intimate language of love with, with God, do we? And yet that's, that's what this whole book of Hosea is about. God wants Israel to know that God loves Israel like a spouse. God is brokenhearted over Israel's infidelity. In other words, friends, don't mistake the lion's roar for a lack of love. That roar is a roar of wounded love. Now, unfortunately, Israel's love for God was very fickle. We see this uh, image in, in verse four about Israel's fickle love. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Do you hear the image God uses for the, the hearts of Israel? The, 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 the love that Israel has for God? 
Once again, in the language of love, imagine you're dating someone, you've gotten pretty serious, and in one romantic conversation, you say the kinds of things that lovers say to one another, and so you say to your beloved, my love for you is like Niagara Falls. And let's just imagine that they say back to you, oh, that is so sweet. Uh, I guess if I had to make a comparison of my love for you, it would be like that light fog that you sometimes see in early morning that is burned off by the sun by, say, 9.30, 10 a.m. How does that make you feel? Is your, is your heart soaring right now? Probably not. Israel's love for God is like morning mist. It's like early dew that disappears, and God wants more. God wants to be in a relationship with Israel. God wants to know Israel deeply, and God wants the same for us. God doesn't want us to come here on Sunday or worship online on Sunday and try to appease God with with empty religious ceremony to just go through the motion. God wants to get to know us as a beloved gets to know a beloved on a heart-to-heart level. And I think that truth helps us make sense of a verse that that may have confused you the first time you read it, and that's Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. It says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, maybe if you've hung out a bit in the Old Testament, that verse is a little confusing at first, isn't it? Because it seems like when you read the Old Testament, God cares a lot about sacrifice, doesn't it? It seems like when you read the Old Testament, God cares a lot about burnt offerings. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible, Leviticus, if you ever read it in a Read the Bible Through program. Uh, and it's like, okay, here we go. And, and it's all about sacrifices. It's all about peace sacrifices and grain offerings and burnt offerings. And, 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 and it's all about sacrifice. And yet, and yet here we read, I desire mercy. What, 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 what is God trying to say to us? I think what God is trying to say is that the sacrifices themselves are designed to show how much we realize we need God. The sacrifices are there to express our heart for God. The, the sacrifices were never to be a way to appease God. Okay, I went to church, check that off. I I bet God's happy about that. No, the sacrifices, the acts of worship are a way to connect our hearts with God, to to confess our need for God and his mercy and and our gratitude for God and his mercy. In his book, uh, Yawning at Tigers, Drew Dick tells a story about a TV commercial where a young man is, is struggling about whether or not to go through with an arranged marriage. He is from a, a country where arranged marriages are the norm. Uh, and I would say over the last few years, I've uh, gotten to see some beautiful arranged marriages in our church. It's been kind of a, a new thing for me growing up here, and, and uh, it's, it's been fun to see. But here this guy is, and his parents have arranged a marriage, and, and uh, he's in America, and he's been exposed to different ways of, of courtship, and he's having second thoughts about this ancient custom. Uh, he's never met his 
wife-to-be, but, but still, she's supposed to be flying into the airport where he lives, and, and uh, he, he wants to be a good son, and so he does what custom demands. He goes to the airport terminal, and he has these flowers in his hands. He has flowers in his hands, but he has a very gloomy expression on his face. But when that future bride walks through the, the gate at the terminal, and he sees her, something happens. Turns out she's beautiful. And suddenly the thought of marrying her is no longer a dreaded duty, but a delight. What has changed? What has changed is that he's met her. What has changed is that he has seen her. The author goes on to say, so often we, 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 we serve God out of, out of obligation. Maybe we drag ourselves to church, but our hearts aren't in it. And we're kind of like that guy at the airport, you know, holding our flowers. (laughs) We brought the flowers, we just didn't bring any joy. What changes us? What changes us is experiencing God. What changes us is getting to know the God who reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ, the God who reveals himself to us through the Holy Spirit, the God who reveals himself to, to, through this inspired word of God. And when we get a vision of who God is, suddenly we're energized. We're energized to do his mission. When we, when we gaze upon God's grandeur, when we see God's glory, right, we, we, we tremble. It, it's no longer a duty Our heart is engaged. It's delight. God desires mercy. God wants your heart, not your bouquet. God wants you. God wants to be acknowledged by you. God wants to be known by you. Now, Maybe right now this is all making you a little bit nervous. That's okay. Maybe because, you know, God is a lion and you realize so often we we fight against the lion or we turn to other human-centered lions to rescue us. Not only that, because God is a lover, maybe you're thinking, well, how often do I just hold up wilted flowers, do my duty, but not really engage God? So maybe you're asking, well, what's the solution? And I think Hosea teaches us the solution in uh, the first part of chapter six. The solution is repentance. We're gonna talk more about this uh, next week, but repentance helps us to see God. Repentance, in other words, opens our eyes to God. I love chapter six, verse one. It's one of the most beautiful promises of grace. Uh, it, is, it, is, it, 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 it captures both the lion and the lover in chapter six, verse one, doesn't it? Come, let us return to the Lord He has torn us to pieces. He has allowed us to experience the consequences of our sin, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Don't you love that? That's the promise of repentance. Yes, we we confess in our battle against God, we've experienced the wounds of disobedience. We've experienced broken relationships. Some some of us may have literal scar tissue that show the wounds of our, our foolishness before God. But God offers a healing that's deeper than we know. God can bind up the broken parts of our souls. God can make us whole. God has grace on tap when we turn to him for repentance. 
God can do even more than that. God can revive our spirits. Have you ever felt like the, the wind has just gone out of your life, the, the inspiration has gone out of your life? Have you ever felt like that balloon that was once inflated but somebody let go and it's about right here? Have you ever felt like that before? Just all the air has gone out. Well, when we repent, when we return to God, when we acknowledge our willful sin, our lovelessness and, 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 and our betrayal, God makes a promise to us in verse two. And I love it. It's written in the poetry, uh, Hebrew poetry. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. God will resuscitate us. God will breathe his life into us. Readers of the New Testament will see a prophecy here, uh, won't they, on the third day. Jesus rose on the third day. Jesus was restored from death to life on the third day, Easter Sunday. And Jesus brings to us that resurrection power. Jesus breathes into us his Holy Spirit. And suddenly our hearts are filled with his breath, his spirit, his presence. And he does so, verse 2 says, so that we might live in his presence. That to me is a definition of, of loving God, living in God's presence. He does so that we might follow the lion, not fight the lion. He does so that we might truly come to know God. Isn't that the promise of verse 3? Remember how he said our love is so often this like fog that burns off early in the day? Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. We've experienced some of those fall rains this week, haven't we? God comes to us like that, not in substantial fog, right? but the rain that nourishes and promotes growth. God's love for us is like that soaking rain that turns the desert into a garden. Repentance comes when we get it, when we, when we see God as both lion and lover, when we see God as both holy and powerful, but also rich in grace and mercy. Repentance comes when we see that this lion has sacrificed for us. Now, I've been using the language of, of lion and lover, but the Apostle John uh, uses the language of, of lion and lamb. Right? Remember that scene from Revelation 5 when all the 24 elders are surrounding the throne waiting to see who will come forward? This last summer, I had a chance to participate at a wedding in a, a beautiful Roman Catholic church in, in Austin, the Barton Creek area, and this church had a, a stunning dome. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. And one of the features of it was that they had the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And it was like uh, uh, they were all kind of standing by each other. I think we have a, a picture of that. Um, they were all kind of standing next to each other. And so you would have like Gad and uh, Philip, you know, you would have kind of the Old Testament, New Testament as a pair. And it was so amazing just to think about that the people of God as represented by the tribes of Israel and the apostles of the New Testament, the holy people of God, Old Testament and New Testament, turning toward the center of the throne. 
In Revelation 5, these 24 elders are, are looking, and one elder uh, uh, says to John, uh, the, the, the author and narrator of Revelation, he says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. In other words, the elder is saying, there is someone who can open the secret scrolls of history. There is someone who can unfold our future. Don't weep, he says to John. The answer is here. And so we're waiting to see the Lion of Judah come out. One of the, one of the tribes was, was uh, one of the 12 tribes was Judah. And Judah's mascot on, on Judah's football team, their mascot was the lion. Uh, that, that was their, their tribal mascot. And from the tribe of Judah came David. And, and from the tribe of David came, the lineage of David came Jesus. And so John is all ready to see Aslan come out, right? The, the, the lion. But, but what he sees next is striking. He sees a lamb, a wounded lamb, a lamb looking as it had been slain. He sees not just a sheep, but he sees a lamb, the most vulnerable kind of sheep. And yet this particular lamb is alive, and he takes a scroll, and he opens the scroll, and he's in charge. The lion is the lamb, is the lion, is the lamb. I'll close with this. Tim Keller pointed out to me in one of his uh, writings uh, an insightful thing, once again, about Aslan and the Chronicles of Narnia. It's where little Lucy is meeting Aslan, and uh, it's in the second book, and, and she says, Aslan, um, Aslan, it, it's so good to see you, and he says, welcome, child. And she says, Aslan, you look bigger to me. And, and Aslan says to Lucy, well, that's because you're older. Not because you are Aslan, not because you've grown bigger in this last year. No, no. Uh, Aslan says, I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Keller says that what Lewis is saying, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that the bigger your God, the bigger you will be. The more you let God be magnified in your heart, the more you put God on a proper scale, the more your heart will grow, the more your soul will grow. Friends, let us begin (laughs) and begin again uh, this day. Let let us commit ourselves to say, God, we want to know you as you really are, magnified in our hearts. We want to grow in reverence for the lion and in gratitude for the lamb. We want to follow the lion who is a lover, the lion who is a lamb. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you each day, as we come to you each week, an important part of coming to you is simply confession, Lord. We confess to you that too often you have been small in our eyes because of our sin and pride. Uh, You have been absent from our lives. And Lord, what's Worse, we've, we've looked to human-centered solutions for divine uh, uh, problems that can only be solved by you, Lord. And so we confess that. We confess, Lord. We confess that so many of the, the wounds and struggles that we've had have come because of our own sin and rebellion. And we come trembling before you in your holiness. But we also come joyfully because the lion loves us. The 
The lion is the lamb who gave his life for us. The lion is the lamb whose blood has cleansed us from all our sin and given us new life. And so, Lord, in this moment, help us to repent. Help us to turn from our sin. Help us to turn from our false allegiances. And help us to turn toward you, to know you, and for our souls to grow larger even now as we worship you as you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.